We read the Holy Scriptures this morning in Romans chapter 5. We're going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We read the word of God that far. The text we consider is verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's commending of his love toward us in the present time by means of the preaching of the gospel of what Christ did for us in a past time gives us tremendous hope for a future time. And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching in this portion of his epistle. In this portion of his epistle to the Romans, the apostle lists a number of the amazing blessings of being justified by faith. Being justified by faith, the apostle says, we have peace with God. Being justified by faith, we have access to preserving grace. Being justified by faith, we have joy in the midst of tribulations. And being justified by faith, we have hope for the future. And that hope that we have for the future, the Apostle says, that hope maketh not ashamed. 
That hope will not make us ashamed. That hope will not disappoint us. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given unto us. The Holy Ghost makes known to us that God loves us. And he makes that known to us through the preaching of the gospel that when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And so you can see what the apostle is doing in this whole section, at least in the section that we're focusing on here. He's teaching us that in the present time, as God commendeth his love toward us, through the preaching of the gospel of what Christ did for us in the past, that Christ died for us, he's giving us hope for the future, that if all that is true, then in the future we shall be saved from wrath. We shall be saved through his life. We shall be saved. We have hope of everlasting salvation. And so this morning, for a few moments, we're going to focus our attention on verses 7 and 8 of this passage, in which the apostle speaks of God commending his love toward us in Christ, and this to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper in a few moments. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, God commendeth his love toward us. Let's notice, first of all, the commending of his love to us, and then secondly, the act that proves his great love for us. The apostle says in verse 8 of our text, but God commendeth his love toward us. We could translate the text, God shows his love for us. He shows his love for us. Now what does that mean? What is the apostle saying when he says that God commendeth his love toward us? He shows his love toward us. Well, at the very least, and first of all, we can say that the apostle is teaching us that God loves us. If God does not love us, then he cannot commend his love to us. If God does not love us, then he cannot show us that he loves us. If God is going to show us something, if God is going to commend something to us, then he must have that thing that he is going to show. He must have that thing that he is going to commend. And so when the apostle says, God commendeth his love toward us, he is teaching us, first of all, and at the very least, that God loves us. And that all by itself is an astounding and astonishing truth. God loves us. Do you understand that truth? Do you understand it for yourself personally? Do you understand not only that God loves people, that God loves his people, that God loves his elect people, but do you also understand God loves us, and in that us is included yourself and myself? Do we grasp in our hearts what this means, that God, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the governor and king and lord of all creatures, loves us. God loves me, and God loves 
you. There are many people, even people who confess to be Christians, who do not really grasp this, who do not really understand this in their hearts. And I dare say even they don't really believe it in their hearts. They know it in their minds. They know that the Bible says God is love. And they know the Bible says that God has so loved the world. And they know that the Bible says God loves his people. And yet, they don't really believe in their hearts that God loves me. They tend to think, when they think of God, only of his power. They tend to think only of his wrath. They tend to think only of his august majesty, his justice and his holiness. And they know all of the terrible things that they have done. They know all of the terrible things that they have experienced in their life. They know the brokenness in their lives. They know the brokenness in their relationships. They know the struggles, the tribulations, the trials and troubles, and they think to themselves, all of these things must be the evidence that God hates me. God must hate me. God could never love someone like me who has done the things that I have done. Perhaps... We have even be tempted, been tempted to think that too at times. That God could never love me. God must hate me. And we look around us and see the pain and the trouble in our lives and we think that's the proof that God doesn't really love me. But today, here in God's house, through the ambassador of Jesus Christ, God commendeth his love Toward us. God shows to us, to you and to me today, that He loves us. What does that mean when we say that God loves us? It means that God takes delight in us, that God takes pleasure in us, that God looks upon us and He sees a person, persons, a church, a people that is precious to Him so precious to him, beyond measure, beyond our imagination, and beyond our comprehension. And it means that in his great delight for us, God longs in his eternal divine heart to do good to us, to bless us with the greatest possible blessings that there could ever be granted to his human creatures. It means that God is determined to do good to us. He's resolved. He's committed to it. And if God is committed to it, then it will be done. He is committed. He is resolved to do the greatest possible good to us. And what is that? It is simply to draw us to himself, to take us up into his arms and to embrace us as his beloved ones. Take us into a relationship with himself, an everlasting relationship an intimate relationship. A relationship in which he opens up his heart to us and we can open up our heart to him. In which he is our God and we are his people. That's what it means that God loves us. That's what he wants for us. Just think of the love of a young man for the young woman that he intends to marry. Think of the love that burns in his heart for her the girl that he has asked to marry him, the girl to whom he is now engaged. He delights in that girl. 
She is precious to him beyond measure and beyond his imagination, beyond his ability to even express in words. She is so dear and so precious to him. And he longs to do good to her. He is determined to good, do good to her. He wants to be her husband. He wants to be her protector, her provider, her godly leader. He wants to make her happy in the Lord. He wants to do everything he can to bless her and to do good to her. And he is determined to take vows before men, before the minister, before God, in the presence of witnesses. He intends to take vows toward her, to do good to her, to be faithful to her to love and cherish and nourish her. To lead her to the Lord, to worship with her, to pray with her, to walk with her down life's journey, to be a husband to her for the rest of his life. That's the love of a young man for the woman that he asks to marry him. And that is but a dim reflection of the love that God has for us. We are so precious to God, like the apple of his eye. Jesus says that we are of more value to God than many sparrows. And there is not a single sparrow that will fall to the ground without the will of our Heavenly Father. God loves all of his little creatures, great and small. He loves all of his animals, all of his trees, all of his mountains and valleys and stars. But we are of more value, we are more precious to him than all those creatures. God longs in the depths of his eternal and infinite being to bless us with everlasting life and to fill our souls with joy and happiness and bliss and to give us the greatest possible thing he could give to us. And what is that? That we should see God. He wants to give us a vision of himself that we should see God face to face in the face of of his Son, and dwell with God in his everlasting covenant of grace throughout all of the long ages of eternity. That's what God wants for us. That's what it means that he loves us. He wants to dwell with us in intimate communion for all eternity. That's a great love. That's the love that God has for us. And that's the love that God commends to us, that he shows to us this morning through the preaching of his word. Now when the apostle says that God commendeth this great love to us, that word commend could also be translated proves. God proves his great love to us. He proves it. Why does God do that? Why does he take the time and the effort to prove to us that great love? The answer is that true love cannot remain unproven. True love cannot remain unspoken. True love cannot, does not, and will not remain undemonstrated. If there is true love, that true love will express itself. That true love will commend itself. That true love will prove itself through words and actions. Think again of that young man so in love with his bride-to-be. He does not just love her. He does not just delight in her. He does not just long to do good to her. He does not just resolve to do good to her. He does good to her. He speaks good to her. 
He tells her that he loves her. He shows her that he loves her. He proves that he loves her through actions. And she needs that. Every wife needs that. Every husband needs that. We need to know. Our wives need to know that we love them. They need to hear us say it. They need to see deeds and actions that prove it. Husbands need to know that our wives love us. We need to hear them say it. We need to see them prove it. We need that. We need that too. God has created us in such a way that we would have this need, that we would have this ache, this deep longing, this deep void in us that only he can fill. And so God commendeth his love toward us. He doesn't just love us. He shows us his love. He proves his love. So that we will never have to doubt. So that we will never have to wonder. He makes it known to us in unmistakable terms. And he doesn't just prove the fact that he loves us, but he proves the greatness of his love, the incomparability of his love. He proves that there is no love like his love in all of the world. He proves it. He has proved it through an action. And in the preaching of the gospel, God commends that love to us by drawing our attention to that action. What is that action by which God has proven to us beyond the shadow of a doubt so that we never have to wonder or doubt whether he loves us? It is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the act. That's the act that God has done so that we would never have to doubt throughout all of the stages and phases of our lives, that God loves us and the greatness of his love. There is no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than the love of a man who is willing to die so that his friends might live, who is willing to die so that his friends might be saved. That's the greatest love of all. The love that sacrifices my own life to give life to those whom I love. Is there any such love as that in all of the wide world in which we live? That kind of love is so, so rare, isn't it? The apostle indicates the rarity of that kind of love in verse 7. When he says, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Scarcely, that is, rarely. Hardly ever does it happen that a man will die for a righteous man. Although that may happen once in a while. It may happen. It's very rare, but it may happen. Because we tend to love righteous men. We tend to love those other human beings who coexist with us in the community and in society, those law-abiding people, those people who obey the law, who obey the government, who are good neighbors, who live in fairness and justice and respect, who mind the laws of the land and pay their taxes. 
We tend to love people like that. We tend to have respect for righteous people, that is, people who appear righteous to us. People who seem to live righteous lives, people who seem to do what is right, they are people who do what is right. We love people like that. But how many people would be willing to die for a righteous man? Not many. How many people would be willing to jump into the raging waters of the flooded river in order to rescue a man that I know is a righteous man, in order to give my life for his life, in order to die that he might live? Not many. Scarce. Rare. Rare is there seen that kind of love in the world. And yet, you can find it. Very rare. But peradventure for a good man, the apostle goes on. Peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. It's very rare that someone would die for a merely, apparently righteous man. But for a good man, perhaps even more would dare to die. A good man. If we tend to love righteous, law-abiding citizens then even more so we tend to love good men and good women. We tend to have a great respect for people of excellent behavior, of outstanding character in the society and community in which we live. We tend to love people who show mercy to the poor, people who care for orphans, people who abound in all kinds of good deeds of generosity and hospitality and charity, and they go about and we see them and they're doing good in the community, they're doing good in the town and in society. We love people like that. And the apostle says, peradventure, perhaps some would even dare to die for a good man. Oh yes, a good man. Perhaps more people would summon up the courage within themselves to lay down their life so that that good man might live. Perhaps they might reason within their minds, my life is a very ordinary life, but that is a good man. It doesn't matter if I go on living, but that man, that woman, with all the good that they're doing, I have to help him. I have to save him. And Maybe, the apostle says, maybe some would even dare to die to save the life of a good man. Also rare, but some would dare to do that. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were righteous, not when we were good, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the great act that God has done to prove his love. While we were yet without strength, the apostle says in verse 6, while we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Hardly will a man die for a righteous man. A few will die for a good man. But Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us sinners. 
He died for us who fell into sin in our first father, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. When they are in the Garden of Eden, God commended his love toward us. And Adam and Eve, our parents, God told us, he showed us that he loved us. We turned away from that love. We rejected that love. And we fell in love with the devil. We gave heed to the enticing, seducing words of the devil. We fell in love with him. We fell in love with his words. We fell in love with his ways. When he told us that if we ate the forbidden fruit, we could be gods. We could have the power. We could have all of the freedom. We could have sovereignty. We could rule and reign our lives. We fell in love with that idea. We fell in love with the devil. We threw ourselves into his arms. We betrayed our God. We rejected our God's love. We allowed ourselves to be seduced, to be enticed, to be drawn away by the love of the prince of darkness. We decided, I will enter into a romantic relationship with this, and not with God, but with this one. This is the one I choose. This is the one I want. The one who cast his lustful eyes on us, whose lips were smoother than oil and his mouth smooth and sweet like honey as he seduced us with the prospect of being gods, of ruling our lives, of having all the pleasures we could desire without anyone telling us what to do or when to do it. That's what we wanted. That's what we fell in love with. And what we didn't realize when we married ourselves to Satan is that he doesn't really love us. He's an abuser. He's an abusive lord, an abusive master. And he's leading us on the path to hell. And when we came into this world and we started to live our lives, we revealed that we are no different from Adam and Eve. We reveal in our day-to-day lives that treacherous and foolish nature within us. Every time we allow ourselves to be seduced by the devil, to take hold of the pleasures of sin, and to turn away from our God. That's spiritual adultery. That's what we are, spiritual adulterers. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait for us to become righteous. God did not wait for us to become good. He did not wait for us to turn back from the devil back into his loving arms. No. God came for us. God pursued us. God became a man in Christ and died for us. Christ came into this world pursuing us in our folly, in our sinful romance, in our wicked deceiving and being deceived. He found us, Christ did. When he came into this world, he found us there. He found us chained up and enslaved willingly to the devil in a willing, romantic relationship with an abusive tyrant. That's where he found us, committing spiritual treachery against God, lying there in the dark dungeon of Satan. 
loving to be abused, loving to be seduced, loving to walk in the paths of darkness, refusing to turn back, not understanding why Christ is here. Why are you coming for me? I don't need to be saved. I don't need to be rescued. I'm doing just fine here with the devil. He came for us. Can you imagine that young man with all of his hopes and dreams of love for his bride that we mentioned earlier, entering now into a marriage with her, but she commits adultery with him against him. She goes to another man. She gives herself to another man. And he comes into the house looking for her. Where are you, my wife? Where are you? What are you doing? She says, what are you doing? Why are you looking for me? I don't need to be found. That's the way we are. Can you imagine what that young man would do? Seeing his wife there, committing adultery with another man, right in front of his eyes. He would turn around and walk right out of the house. His heart would be so broken. He would be so angry. He wouldn't be able to contain himself. He would walk right out of that house. That's not what Christ did. He didn't walk out. When he found us, he didn't walk away. He died for us. He gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. That's what he did. That's the greatness of God's love. For us foolish, ungodly, adulterous sinners. God commendeth his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, still wallowing in the filth and mire of our sin, still willingly in a love relationship with the devil. While we were yet sinners, yet reveling in that miserable love affair with Satan, he gave himself, allowed himself to be nailed to the cross of Calvary, to have the nails pounded through his hands and his feet. And there on the cross, he shed his precious blood, the blood of God, the blood of God in the flesh. He shed that blood while we were yet sinners. While we're yet going about enjoying the damnable pleasures of sin, thinking that it's all wonderful and joyful and happy, he died for us died for us. We deserve that punishment of death. We deserve to be killed with our lover. We deserve to be cast into hell. We deserve to experience everlasting death. But Christ died for us. He died for us. He suffered all the fullness of the penalty of death that we deserve for us. He died for us to pay for our sins, to satisfy the justice of God, and to break our obsession with sin, to break our slavery to the devil. That's why he died for us. To break that terrible, romantic relationship to the devil that ends in hell. 
He died for us to break that. We can't break it. We love that relationship to Satan. We love sin. He died for us to break it. To reconcile us to God. To restore us to a love relationship with God. He did not die for righteous people. He did not die for good people. He died for the ungodly. For us. Do you doubt then that God loves you? Do you doubt it? Do you say, yes, that's all true of me. I'm I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. I do love sin. I do love the world. God could never love me. Then stop. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. to save us from our sins, to pay the price of our sins, to restore us to God. That's the greatness of his love, you see? God's love means that we are so precious to him that even though we have sinned so greatly against him, he has done the greatest possible thing in giving his son. To redeem us and reconcile us to himself. He has proven it so that throughout all the ages of history, we who believe in Jesus Christ need never doubt God loves me, even me. And the apostle then says, Being now justified in his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If God loved us that much, that much, if God loved us so miserable and ungodly, that much, then he will love us for all eternity. He will never stop loving us, but we shall be saved from wrath through him. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we never cease to stand amazed at the greatness of thy love. We thank thee for the precious holy scriptures which convey to us that mighty message and which set before us again this morning the historical proof the act that thou hast entered into history in the person of thy Son and died for us that we might live. Now as we come to the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that thou would use this too for our comfort, for our admonition, and to assure us of that love.